0: Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru Cole Nussbaumerkiel. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole.
1: Hi, this is Cole. Thanks for tuning in. I was in London recently and was reminded of the magic of being in person with others. Such a simple thing. And yet, if you're like me, as a result of the past couple of years, you just don't do it as much as you once did. seems crazy to think that I used to have that every day when I'd simply go to work in banking in Seattle or at Google in Mountain View. After that, when I first started storytelling with Data, I traveled nearly weekly, teaching workshops all over the country and around the world. I can recall getting so much done on airplanes, (laughs) uninterrupted work time, and I always got so inspired. Creativity simply flowed when in a new or different environment. Fast forward to today, things have changed. I work from home. I don't travel nearly as much. I still like to think that I get work done and that I'm reasonably creative, but this definitely makes the times that I do travel feel noteworthy and special. On this recent trip, I was able to catch up in person with my colleague, Simon, who's based in the UK. Together, we taught a masterclass in London to a super engaged group. It was clear that being in a different environment wasn't invigorating solely to me. Rather, multiple people commented on how useful it was to be away for the day, in a place distanced from work and free of the normal distractions, to take a step back and think about how they typically work, and how they might work better. We practiced a lot of low tech strategies for planning data driven communications and exchanged feedback and ideas. One kind participant told me afterwards that the session had been life changing. I'll pause here to mention that we have just one more public masterclass planned for this year. It takes place in a few short days with the entire Storytelling the Data team on May 5th, that's 2023, in Chicago. While I had hoped that 2023 would be the year of back to in-person, it's clear that people at large have a different agenda. Don't get me wrong, virtual is great in a lot of ways, but it simply isn't the magic that you get in person. If you'd like to experience it, you should really join us in Chicago, because given the current climate, I'm honestly not sure when we'll do it again. If you are interested, be sure to listen to the end of this episode when I'll share a special discount. Back to London, and on a more positive note, I also had a conference keynote presentation. I drew on content from my latest book, which is all about planning, creating, and delivering stellar presentations. I did some of the typical transform-the-graph-or-slide content, but also spent a good amount of time on the role that the person place when communicating data, and in particular, what everyone can do to improve how they communicate, whether formally, from on stage, in business meetings, or simply talking to colleagues. In similar fashion to how I showed good graph design by first starting with something less than ideal and then improving it, I illustrated speaking in the same way. First, presenting in a typical but clearly uninspiring manner, demonstrating several common issues that it was clear folks in the audience could relate to, then modeling what it could be. I tend to get pretty dramatic on stage when doing these things, playing up both the bad and the good, to really emphasize the power of that distinction. I was chatting with an attendee later in the day and made a comment about my own, let's call it charismatic delivery, perhaps being too dramatic for a more conservative European audience, to which they responded, no, not at all. It's helpful when you emphasize it. It is helpful when you emphasize it, not only to make a point in a keynote presentation. Rather, thoughtful emphasis can be applied to basically all of our visual and verbal communications. That is what I'd like to talk about today. Tactics for creating contrast and emphasis, whether a number, words, in your table or graph, or in the way that you speak and move. Let's start simple. Let's say there's an important number that you want to draw people's attention to. I'll use a specific example to set up various ways that we might accomplish this. In the case study in my latest book, Storytelling with You, one important number is wrapped up in the fact that macadamia nut prices have recently increased 37%. Note how I just emphasized that with my voice, we'll talk more about that in a bit. Let's say I wanna make sure that this number sticks with my audience. If I'm simply talking without any visual aids, I might take a moment to actually write it down. You can imagine I get out a piece of paper and my pen and I write the number 37 and circle it or do something similar on a whiteboard. People would watch this and it would take time. It would feel more important because of the time it takes me to do it and the fact that I chose to do so. If I'm using a slide deck to present, consider how I might draw attention to 37% in that case. I could make the number bigger or bolder than anything else on the slide. I could put it on its own slide. A slide devoid of anything besides the number 37 is going to put the focus on that number. I can do all of these things. I can put it on its slide and make it big and bold. Still in slide land, I might visualize it. Not in a graph, quite yet, we'll get there, but through an image. Imagine a full slide, beautiful, crisp image of a ton of macadamia nuts. I could show that, give it a moment to register with my audience, and then communicate the 37%. Or to combine these last two ideas, I could do that and then have the numbers, 37% big, appear on top of that image. This won't always make sense, but think about when it could. In another context, I might humanize it. Let's say the 37% isn't the increase in the price of nuts, but rather some proportion of people. If appropriate to round, I might say 4 out of 10 people to help contextualize it. This removes the abstraction of the percent and makes it a quantity that people can picture. In some cases, it might make sense to further contextualize that number with others around it. I might opt for a table, for example. Let's consider how I could focus attention within that structure. Most obvious would be to highlight the given number, make all of the rest of the elements in the table neutral in some way, You could imagine them being black or gray, and then employ sparing contrast to direct attention. I could use some of the things we've already talked about, bold, make the number bigger, use color just on that number I want people to look at, or I might outline it or put a color background. Anything that's going to create visual contrast and make that thing, in this case, that number that I want people to pay attention to, visually distinct from everything else around it. If I'm presenting live to my audience, I might fill in the interesting number first And then after that, add the context of the other numbers around it. Or I could do the reverse, put all the other numbers on there, leave the one blank, and then have the number appear. Motion is attention grabbing. So the fact that there was empty space that then gets filled in by a number means that number, that thing that is new, will garner attention. Beyond a single number, let's say I want to highlight an entire row or column within a table. One way I can do so is simply by virtue of where I put that row or column in a table. So assuming for a moment that we don't have any sort of natural ordering to the columns or the rows that we have to preserve for some other reason. If our audience is starting at the top left of our table, they're typically going to move in zigzagging sort of way from left over to the right and then down and so forth. So I could put the most important data first, either in the first column or the first row depending on the structure or if that doesn't make sense to rearrange the rows and columns in that way, given the context of the table and what else is in it, I can think about how I can make that row or column visually distinct from the rest. Using some of the things that we've already talked about, bold, color, if it's numeric data I could provide some sort of heat mapping for the piece that I want people to look at. These are all additional visual cues that can work as a signal to our audience to say, I've already looked at all of this data and applied my reasoning, and I believe you should look first and foremost here. I think one of the challenges that comes up when we create our work is that we have a lot of context. And so we know what's important or more or less important that people should pay attention to. But most often, in order to make that clear to our audience, we need to provide some visual cues as a way to do so. Another way to draw people's attention to important data that might start out in a table is to take it out of the table and visualize it. So let's shift now to graphs. How do we get others to pay attention where we'd like them to in a graph? Let's consider an example. I'll ask you to imagine a line graph. It's showing the cost of nuts over time. The y-axis reflects price in dollars. The x-axis is time, measured in years. Uh, There are several lines on this graph. One of them, of course, is macadamia nuts. Others might include almonds, cashews, hazelnuts. We want people who look at this graph to focus on the line reflecting the price of macadamia nuts over time. How might we accomplish this? First, let's talk about a couple of brute force methods these are better than nothing and can work in particular if you don't have access to the underlying data or the graph directly for example if you have a screenshot that you have to make work uh, but you still want to try to focus attention within that one of those brute force methods is just point an arrow in this case at the macadamia nut line showing people that you want them to look here You could also enclose it in some way. You could put a box or a circle around it. Simon, who I presented with last week, has a nice way of explaining this piece, which is if you had it printed on a piece of paper and you're showing it to someone else, you might actually physically take out your pen and circle the thing that you want them to look at. Another brute force way, and this, again, in the case where you are taking a screenshot of something and you don't have the ability for whatever reason to play with the nuances of the graph design, is you can put transparent shapes over everything that's not the data that you want to stand out. This has the visual effect of pushing everything else to the background, making it less intense and leaving the data that you want people to look at in full intensity. When you do have the ability to make changes to the graph design directly, it's going to be a little bit more eloquent of a solution than the others that we've talked about so far. And there are a number of things that we can do to signal importance and direct our audience's attention to where we want them to look. A number of these we've talked about already in the construct of the number or the table, making everything else in the graph neutral and then using color sparingly on the one line that we want people to focus on. We could also use thickness. We could make the macadamia nut price line thicker and the others thinner or a combination of those two things. You could also think about how you might bold the label macadamia on that line. Position is something that we can sometimes play with in graphs to put the important data where our audience will encounter it first. In a line graph, this isn't typically the case because the data is plotted where it falls numerically. But when it comes to position with line graphs, we can make sure that the line of interest doesn't fall behind any of the others. Make sure it's positioned on top so that other lines don't cross in front of it we could play with line style. Dotted lines are very attention grabbing. You just want to take care because they also introduce some visual clutter. If we consider a single solid line, it's one visual element. As soon as we make it dotted, now it's, you know, 20 or 50 or 100 distinct visual elements. So dotted lines or lines of different styles can add some visual clutter. When it's worth doing that, I think is when the dotted line reflects uncertainty that is inherent in the data. For example, it's a forecast or a target or a goal. Dotted lines work well there, and I think the benefit we get from this idea of them being uncertain or not set in stone uh, overshadows or uh, outweighs the clutter that gets introduced by chopping the line up. We could label only the line that we want people to look at. We could even only show the line that we want people to look at. This is always a question that we should be asking ourselves when we are communicating with data. Do we need all the data we're showing? Because we tend to err on the side of too much data versus not enough data. However, when you're considering not showing all the data, you wanna be thoughtful about what context you might lose when doing so, and weigh that trade off to figure out what might make sense there. Another way would be to show only that line and then have the others appear. This can work well in a live setting, as well as the opposite of that. Show all the other lines, right? In this case, the line for almonds and cashews and hazelnuts, and then have the macadamia nut line appear. And the fact of it not being there and then becoming visually apparent is attention garnering we could put data markers and data labels on the line we want people to look at. Now, when we do this on every single data point, it can become overwhelming and look cluttered. But we can actually draw attention to specific points of data by labeling and putting markers just there. So in this example, we might do that just at the 37% increase to help direct eyes not only to that line, but to that specific data point within it. You could also prime your audience with words. So imagine if you title that graph something about macadamia nuts, it prompts people to be looking for macadamia nuts when they get to the graph. These tactics can be effective on their own, but they are particularly powerful when you layer them. Imagine a neutral graph that has the lines on it that are all gray, right? It's almonds, cashews, hazelnuts. But then you have this other one that's bold. It's blue. It has a few important data points labeled and primes your audience with the words, macadamia nut priced increased 37%. Speaking of words... When you have more than a few words on a slide, you can use many of the tactics that I've shared already. If we think back to the table, we talked about position. When it comes to words on a slide, think about putting the most important ones at the top so that people see them first. I'm always a big advocate of a takeaway title for your slide title, meaning don't just describe what people are going to see on the slide. Tell them what they need to know. What is that takeaway? Also in words, sparing emphasis via contrast. This is similar to what we talked about with the single number, for example. Make important words big or bold or a different color than the rest. Let's consider a couple specific examples. Say we have a slide of bulleted text. Now I would say don't present this live, but if it's something you're sending around that people are consuming on its own, you might put the pithy topic or action first after each bullet point and use contrast there. Make the text bold and a contrasting color like black or blue when the other text is dark gray. For example, let's say we're summarizing the findings of a customer feedback survey. I could emphasize a pithy phrase like winning on price or we resolve issues quickly and then expand upon each of these with more details. And what this does is it makes it so all of the details are there. People can see it. They can read it if they want to. But the visual hierarchy that you've employed also makes it scannable. Speaking of survey data, another example where you might have words on a slide could be when sharing verbatim quotes. Now, these can be fantastic for humanizing ideas and topics because someone, a person, said those very words. In a longer quote, you might emphasize sparingly within it. Make a few choice words that get the primary point across big or bold or colorful. If you can pique your audience's attention and get the main message across through that, then those who want to can take the time to read the full quote. Those are a couple of ways to emphasize words on a page. Let's shift next to creating emphasis when we speak. As it is in our visual communications, in verbal communications, contrast is also key for providing a signal to our audience that something is different, and they should listen and pay attention. We can do this with our voice, and we can do that in a couple of ways, mainly through speed or volume. When it comes to speed, I might increase my pace of speech as I approach a critical point that I want people to remember, creating energy with the tempo of my voice. Or I might slow down, putting palpable thought into every word. Now, you wouldn't want to do either of these things all of the time, but the value, again, is in the contrast. Speak normally most of the time and then use increases or decreases in the tempo of your speech to get people's attention in a different way. We can do this through volume as well. I can get loud to emphasize, or I can get increasingly louder building a crescendo, I can also reduce my volume, even whisper, to build anticipation and get people's ears to perk up for what I'll say next. After that, I might pause, allowing space to punctuate my spoken words and then make a critical point. The price of macadamia nuts has increased 37%. There you get a taste of the drama that I sometimes bring forth on stage. It's not to mean that you need to do things to the extreme, but rather to illustrate the spectrum of what you could do and to get you thinking about when and how you might start to incorporate some of these tips into the way you speak in a manner that's authentic to you. When speaking live to others, body language is something else we can use for emphasis. Consider how you might use your hands. You could point to something that's important. You might enumerate, actually putting out your fingers as you build a list. I can throw my hands in the air for emphasis. Interestingly, doing so also changes my voice. Uh, Moving intentionally in space is another thing that we should be conscious of when it comes to our body language. You could imagine presenting from a stage in front of a large audience or to others in a meeting setting where people are seated around a table. You want to move in the space so that you can connect with everyone. No one feels ignored. This means you're more likely to have their full attention when you do employ some of these tactics for emphasis. You could also move in a way that reflects what you're talking about. For example, if I have a process I want to talk people through from start to finish, I might start on my right-hand side. Uh, This is assuming that I'm facing my audience, so this will be their left. And then as I talk step-by-step about the process, I actually take steps leftward. Uh, So from my audience's perspective, I'm moving rightwards. And so that idea of the process or the path is actually emphasized by how I move about the space. Just to give you a really specific example, as part of our workshops, I'll often comment on the typical analytical process where you start out with a question or a hypothesis So this is the point where I'm at the furthest right that I'm going to be uh, physically in this progression. Then you gather the data. You analyze the data. So at each of these points, I'm taking steps leftwards. Again, rightwards from the viewpoint of the audience. You graph the data, right? And then you have some findings and so on and so forth. So where I physically am in space and how I'm moving relative to where I just was is another way of emphasizing the steps in the process and the fact that it is a process from my audience's vantage point. I mentioned before, throwing my hands in the air. I'll also just comment that it's interesting to me. So one, I can't talk about this and not physically do these things. But the fact that when I do them, my voice sounds different. So me emphasizing through my body also prompts me to do so with my voice. You can also go from sitting to standing or vice versa to shift and gain attention. So again, it's all about contrast, contrast via how you move, how you use your body, your hands, your facial expression. And just like when we talked about the power of layering visual contrast, to direct attention in our visuals, our graphs, for example, we can layer aspects of everything I've touched on today to make sure we have people's full attention when we need it. Next time you have something to communicate, consider how you might emphasize it, visually, verbally, or in both of these ways. Back to my session in London last week, there were some great questions following my keynote presentation and over the course of the day that I thought I'd take a few moments to share. One was, you talked about moving with intention when presenting. How does this change with virtual environment? Virtual is interesting because you are boxed in from the perspective of others. That box is created by the edges of what your camera is capturing. So what you need to do is get familiar with your box, which means you need to see yourself how others see you. So in my setup, I have an external camera mounted just above my monitor, and it has a screen on it that I'm able to flip so that I can actually see myself, understand how much space I have in front of me to potentially use my hands to gesture and how high they have to be in order for them to be visible. I also am aware of how much space I have to either side. Again, that's mainly for hand motion because I'm not physically going to be moving around a ton within that because that can get distracting. Or if you don't have a camera that allows you to see yourself directly, then you can do a mock recording straight through your computer with a platform that you have there or Zoom or any of those will allow you to do that. So understanding where you are and where you should be within that screen so that you're face is large enough that people are going to be able to see your facial expressions. You know if you're going to be using your hands or your body for emphasis that that will be in view. I can recall one video that we did at one point where I didn't know where this was. This was more of the highly produced sort of one where there's a camera on a tripod in front of me and I was wearing this shirt that had puffy sleeves and I didn't realize that I was using my hands in a way that was low. They were being cut off by the bottom of the camera. They weren't being filmed. And so in the video, it just looks like I'm flapping my arms, like I have wings, which was not ideal. Also, in virtual, you are flattened and you are shrunk down, right? Often you're just in a corner of the screen, or even if people have you on the full screen, you're going to be smaller likely than you are in person, which means you need to be bigger to come across and really to make some of these points of emphasis that we talked about earlier. You mentioned being careful of your hands, but... Uh, facial expressions should be a little bigger, right? So you can think of amping yourself up for virtual environment. Also, your voice becomes even more important because if people can see you, you're small. You may even not be on screen or in some cases you won't have your camera on. And so the way you use your voice becomes very useful for getting people's attention and maintaining their attention in virtual land. Another question spurred by my keynote, and this is a place where I know many people struggle. When I present, I try to be conscious of not using filler words, but then once one creeps in, which always happens, I find myself in a downward spiral and they come pouring out. How do I eliminate filler words? Reducing and optimally eliminating filler words is something we should all aim to do. In a business setting, they can make you sound unprofessional, uncertain or lacking in confidence and even bring your credibility into question. And please don't try to get out of this by making the excuse, it makes me sound more conversational. (laughs) Like clutter in a graph, a filler word here or there isn't likely going to be the end of the world, but don't let more than a few distract from you, your words and your message. To curb them, I'll mention a few things to try. The first, and I will say the mightiest way, is to record yourself. Record yourself presenting something that you know reasonably well, or if you're preparing for a presentation or a communication of some sort, record yourself doing that, giving that presentation for a few minutes. And you want to do this to become aware of which filler words you're using, and probably more importantly, when you use them. Because when we can understand why and when they're entering our vocabulary, then we can figure out how to take specific action to counter that. One common place that filler words come into play is when someone is trying to think of the next word they want to say. And so rather than that, get comfortable pausing when you're searching for that next word. Because you can imagine the um, ah, oh, uh as you try to land on the word that you mean to find next sounds like you don't know what you're talking about. Whereas if you pause until your mind lands on that word or a suitable replacement, then you sound thoughtful. Once you know how you're using them and which you're using, I would say let people around you, colleagues, family members, know and practice eliminating them from your regular conversations as well. And actually ask people to point out when you're using them can be irritating, but a useful way to catch yourself and adjust practicing out loud is an excellent way I think it helps brain I think it helps train your brain on different pathways that you could take with the way that you talk about something, which means then when you're ultimately talking about the thing in the more important setting, you have different pathways that you can use and you maybe have fewer nerves about remembering exactly what you wanted to say in exactly the right order because you know you can get there in multiple different ways. So I personally, I'm a big fan of practicing aloud without my visual content, so without my graphic or slides. I'm known to do this walking around my neighborhood. Actually, for the conference last week, I went on a beautiful walk through Regent's Park the morning of my keynote. The session was in the afternoon. And as I walked through the park, I was talking through my presentation. And this, I think, both gets those words fresh in your mind, but then also gives me the confidence that, hey, I know this stuff. I can do it reasonably well. I'll be able to talk through it in a way that will put my mind at ease when I'm in the actual moment so I can focus then instead on connecting with people. Written reminders can also be useful. So if if you have some notes that you'll be referring to, just having something highlighted that says filler words, eliminate them, or I'll write them on sticky notes. If it's something virtual, you write the sticky note and then cross it out of the filler word that I'm trying to eliminate and put that where I can see it. Though I will say, remind yourself before you present, but when you're actually doing the communication, when you're presenting, try not to worry about them then, because I think what happens is what the question asker has experienced in the past, which is you a filler word creeps into your presentation, and now you're trying to still speak while you're thinking in the back of your mind, oh, shoot, I was trying not to say that word, and now I said it, and now you get into this pattern where now they're entering more because you're only kind of half thinking about what you're saying next. And that can be that downward spiral that was mentioned in the question. So when you're presenting, try to really be in the moment. I mentioned that my colleague Simon was at the conference as well. He ran an awesome breakout session on the topic of the analytical journey. I'll turn things over to him briefly to share a question that came up there and his response.
0: Thanks, Cole. The question I received was, what step should I consider taking if I've done the analysis and created the content, but I'm not going to be the one presenting it? This is a question that really resonates with me as during my days working in financial services, I experienced this on a regular basis. Often I would be responsible for analyzing and creating the content before then passing it on to my manager to present usually in the executive environment. Now, at the beginning of this journey, I wasn't too unhappy and I accepted my role as more of a junior member of the team. But as I gained seniority within the department, I found it a little bit frustrating that my work was passed over to present and I'd lose the visibility of the session and how it went and how well my work was being received. I recall on occasion I was even asked to remain outside the room on standby just in case any detailed questions arose or further impromptu investigations were required. Based on that experience, there are a couple of tips that I'm going to share. Firstly, if you know you aren't going to be presenting yourself, then ensure that there's a proper pre-brief with the person who is going to be talking through the content. Walk them through the content, highlighting the key points that you would be expecting to make. Talk through those especially interesting elements where there's a potential cause for action or recommendation. And ensure that they have made appropriate notes or cues for those places. Finally, make sure there is enough time for a quality pre-brief well in advance and don't leave it uh, to five minutes or so before the session is due to start. You can take this further by adding speaking notes directly to the content yourself to ensure that those key points are brought up during the session. And to further embed this, build the content in a way that directs attention to those points. Now, this could be achieved in a couple of ways. Using effective use of slide titles to ensure those key topics are clearly marked and the audience sees them during the meeting. And to create the pack using effective animation, so as the story and presentation progresses, it follows that structured path, and the story is built up around those key talking points. Each time the slide is commenced, it just builds a little bit more on top, which makes sure that that key story can continue on the path you intended. However, my overwhelming response to anyone that asks this question is to see if you can attend the session yourself. Now, I understand that isn't always going to be possible or achievable, but the more opportunities that you have to join these sessions to either present or maybe initially just to listen in and get a feeling for the meeting, the more you're going to build your credibility and your relationship with your audience, but also your confidence as well as you expose yourself to these meetings more often. You'll learn far more about the business you're in by being in these discussions than what you might read or hear uh, from internal communications. And the more you're able to expose yourself to these situations, the more confidence grows and the more your credibility grows with that audience. And then a natural transition of roles becomes possible whereby you might agree to co-present and then ultimately progress to the position where you can present the content yourself. Back to my experience, a similar transition happened to me where I initially attended very much for listening purposes and to allow my audience to become familiar with me, to then co-presenting the content and then ultimately running the sessions. So in closing, there are a few techniques you can apply to help steer the presentation on the course you've designed it for, but do try and see whether you are able to join and present the content for yourself. There's nothing quite like the buzz you get and the audience appreciation from conducting a stellar presentation of your own work.
1: Thanks, Simon. At the conference, I also participated in a panel discussion on the topic of storytelling to the C-suite. One question that came up there was, what mistake have you made when communicating with senior leadership and what did you learn from it? I recalled a scenario from when I worked at Google. I was presenting to the head of sales, and I was meant to be presenting on the cost of attrition. And I say meant to be presenting because I got in the way of myself. Uh, there's a, are a lot of things that go into trying to understand and quantify the cost of attrition and a lot of assumptions. And so I found as I was doing the work that oh, it would be helpful to list those assumptions, right? Put those caveats right up front so that people can really understand everything that goes into that ultimate number that they'll be looking at. And I didn't realize as I was doing so that that list of caveats grew to be quite large. And actually on the visual that I had the head of sales looking at, it was almost entirely caveats. The actual graph took up a very small proportion of it all. He took one look at that and looked at me and said, I don't believe anything you're going to tell me. And the meeting was over. So I think when it comes to what I learned from that, if I step back and think about really what I was trying to accomplish, the message I wanted to get across wasn't the number of the cost of attrition. It was that the sales organization spends a ton of time and energy interviewing to fill open roles. And interestingly, that's probably something I could reasonably quantify if I thought that it would be compelling. So given all the energy that goes into it, you should work to retain people once they're here because the cost of doing all of that over again is significant. It's funny how situations like that stick with us. I would say more generally, pausing to consider each success and failure and what we can learn from it and how we can use that learning to do better next time is a powerful way to refine your skills, both when visualizing and communicating with data and when communicating in general. Before I wrap, a couple of quick updates. Our one-day storytelling and presenting data masterclass is Friday, May 5th, 2023 in Chicago. This will feature the entire Storytelling with Data team and will be our only U.S. in-person public workshop this year. Register to join us before time and space run out. For those unable to join in person, we do also have upcoming virtual Storytelling with Data and Storytelling with You workshops. Details and registration on all of this can be found at storytellingwithdata.com slash workshops. Use the code podcast10 at checkout for 10% off the registration price. That's podcast one zero. If you're wondering why nuts were a prominent part of today's episode, check out my latest book, Storytelling With You, Plan, Create, and Deliver a Stellar Presentation. It'll make sense then, I promise. Visit storytellingwithyou.com to download sample content or order your copy today. If you've already read and enjoyed it, I would be super appreciative if you'd take a moment to share your review on Amazon. On the topic of books, if you teach from or would like to teach from Storytelling with Data books, we have a fantastic set of resources for university instructors. Go to storytellingwithdata.com university to learn more and join upcoming instructor-focused events. Would you like to ask a question or share a challenge you're facing with one of the talented and experienced folks on the Storytelling with Data team? That's one awesome benefit of premium membership in the Storytelling with Data community. Join weekly office hours to get input on your work, brainstorm approaches, or get your data graph and presentation questions answered. Learn more at community.storytellingwithdata.com premium. If you like to learn via video or would appreciate data visualization and presentation resources to share with colleagues, check out the Storytelling with Data YouTube channel. That's at storytellingwithdata.com YouTube. Subscribe for a no-cost way to support us and be notified of new episodes. Speaking of subscribing, if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and share with a friend. Thanks for tuning in.